if that's the argument we're making, well, then it sounds like we're hate-filled, we're judgmental, we're bigots, we're hypocrites, we're outdated. And on those terms, that's kind of a non-debatable debate. We've already lost. You're listening to a sermon series titled Song of Solomon, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Song of Solomon chapter three. We are gonna be diving into a marriage today. And so the title of the sermon is Whatever Happened to Marriage? And I would say this arguably may be one of the more important sermons that I have to preach this year. And you might ask why, why is this an important sermon to preach? Well, because of what is at stake in our culture today. Uh, These are days when the question of marriage or the definition of marriage, the equality of marriage, the roles of marriage uh, in our Western cultural context have been not only questioned, but redefined in new and uncharted ways. Now, I preached a similar sermon to this. The last time I, I preached through the Song of Solomon was 2011. And at that time, almost 10 years ago, I said this. I said, we are about to surpass the tipping point and are about to plunge headlong into some very difficult and dark days. I said that almost 10 years ago, how true that was and how much has changed since then. Let me give you a few stats. 10 years ago, uh, the LGBTQ plus community was about 9 million Americans. Uh, According to a 2011 study by a scholar at UCLA, at the Laws Williams Institute. Now that number has um, adjusted a bit as the population has grown to about 328 million Americans. So that number has grown to about 15 million Americans, but it's still at or under 5%. Uh, At that time, 10 years ago, uh, 15.3 million unmarried heterosexual individuals were what we call cohabitating or in live-in relationships. Um, they say living in sin, right? So that uh, has, is about the same as it was back then. Um, I don't have the stat for you, but about 50% of marriages were uh, 10 years ago ending in divorce. Now you've heard that that's the same in the church. That's not accurate. People say, oh, it's the same inside the church, outside of the church. The numbers within the church is way lower. So that's a good thing. But the number of divorces within the church is still high. Uh, It's estimated back then about 30 to 60% of all married individuals will engage in infidelity at some point in their marriage. And then sadly, 10 to 20% of adultery victims claim to be Christians. The cheating spouse usually is an attendant of church or religious activities. So you see that and you go, well, no wonder marriage is being questioned because no one has respect for it. No one is honoring what marriage actually is. So what I want to do this morning is navigate circumspectly through the waters of of marriage and what scripture has to say about it. Now the world has its judgments for sure, and I'm not here to argue politics or human rights by any means. So if you have an open mind, my prayer is that you listen to what the Bible says, and if you don't agree with me or the Bible, you can feel free to blog your disapprovals accordingly, and I'm sure I'll read about it 
uh, and you'll have an avid audience. I'm not here to impress man. I'm not here to form a political platform, although if you will write in my name on November 3rd, that would be great. I am here as a follower of Christ, simply a follower of Christ, who's thoroughly convinced about what the Bible literally teaches and what our response should be as those who trust in Holy Scripture. So it's just simply my desire to equip us for the work of ministry in the upcoming months and years, because I believe the message that I'm going to share with you this morning is going to become increasingly difficult to proclaim and to affirm because people are more and more incredulous to the message of the church as it pertains to marriage. And let me explain why. In the last 10 years, some things have changed from when I preached through Song of Solomon previously. Uh, in 2011, I preached this, but in 2012, the Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA, particularly Section 3, was declared unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court. Then, of course, in 2015, you remember Obergefell versus Hodges. That was the landmark civil rights case where the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that the fundamental right to marry is guaranteed to same-sex couples. That passed by a close vote of five to four. Now, that ruling is actually five years old now. And that ruling states that all 50 states, the District of Columbia and the insular areas, must perform and recognize the marriages of same-sex couples on the same terms and conditions as the marriages of opposite-sex couples with all of the accompanying rights and responsibilities. And, and so what essentially happened, not to get lost in all of the lingo, what essentially happened is what I'm going to show you on the screen. The definition of marriage was changed from what it's always been in the ancient definition, a sacred covenant between husband and wife, that was changed to marriage is a union between two consenting people. Maybe you've even thought that's what marriage is. Why are we against this? Why are we against same-sex couples getting married? They love one another. They're consenting. Who are we to stop that? Uh, Christian businesses across the U.S. must now recognize gay marriages no matter what their religious convictions may or may not be. In fact, the cultural theologian, Justin Timberlake, he actually weighed in on this. He said about New York uh, specifically legalizing gay marriage, he said, I was stoked that that happened. We're people and we're different, all of us. And we should be using, li listen to this language, we should be using our differences to bring ourselves closer together, you know? Not be afraid of something that we don't know. It's unfortunate that things take a while to progress like this, but it was a great, great victory for equality. Now, just listen to that argument. Who are we as Christians to stand in the way of progress, rights, equality, and love? I mean, here we come along as Christians and we say, God is against love. God is against equality. God is against progress. God is against your rights. If that's the argument we're making... Well, then it sounds like we're hate-filled, we're judgmental, we're bigots, we're hypocrites, we're outdated. And on those terms, that's kind of a non-debatable debate. We've already lost. But are those the right terms to debate? Are we talking about progress or are we talking about revision? Are we really talking about someone's right? Well, in a great blog post, it's a little bit dated now, um, called Gay is Not the New Black, the African-American pastor Vody Bauckham says this, he says, it should be noted that the right to marry, if we call it a right, is one of the most frequently denied rights we have. People who are already married, 12-year-olds, and people who are too closely related are just a few categories of people routinely and or categorically denied the right to marry. 
Hence, the charge that it is wrong to deny any person a fundamental right rings hollow. There has always been, and by necessity, will always be discrimination in marriage laws. For example, following this line of reasoning, one could argue, I have the right to join the military, but I'm a pacifist. Therefore, I don't really have the right since it would be repulsive to me. Therefore, we need to establish a pacifist branch of the military so that I can fulfill both my desire to join and my desire to fight. Listen, this is not about progress. It's not about rights. It's not about inequality. The question is, what is marriage? And what is the point and the original purpose of marriage? And the answer to that question lies somewhere that culture would not be looking. It lies within the pages of scripture, and more specifically for us this morning in the Old Testament Song of Solomon. Now, uh, if you're maybe newer um, to Shoreline, we've been studying the Song of Solomon for the last few weeks, and we've seen the courtship of King Solomon and his bride-to-be named Shulamith. And last week we saw Solomon coming to call on her. That's a phrase we don't use anymore. Um, He was coming to call on her, and they were beginning to um, talk about this wedding that's coming up, and they're anticipating the wedding, and then he kind of leaves. Well, now we see a cloud of dust kicked up by his huge procession as he arrives to the wedding to scoop his bride up and to bring her back to the marriage bed. And by the way, next week, parents, you definitely want to take advantage of kids' ministry next week because next week is probably the highest adult rating of the Song of Solomon because we'll dive into chapter 4. Read ahead. Um, There's a lot of in-depth content that we'll be diving into, so just be prepared for that next week. But as he arrives to take her to the wedding, we're going to see just five verses today. And we're also going to look a little bit at Genesis and a little bit of Ephesians 5. So look at at verse 6 with me. uh, Wow. Song of Solomon, chapter 3. We will talk about Colossians 3. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? That's a good question. The smoke that's coming up, uh, this cloud of dust is no doubt being kicked up by Solomon's many horses and this big bridal party with them. Now notice with me that there's fragrance in his arrival. And we've pointed out in the last few weeks, Solomon was a wise single guy by wearing lots of cologne. And so he shows up and notice that Shulamith, the girl, the bride-to-be, points everyone's attention on him. This seems culturally different. When I go to a wedding, when you and I go to a wedding, we can't wait for that moment when we hear the special cue and there everyone stands and turns around to watch the bride enter the room and all eyes are on the bride and she looks beautiful every time. I've never seen a non-beautiful bride every single time. But what I love to do, and often I'll be doing the wedding itself, so I've done my fair share. I'll stand next to the bridegroom and of course there she comes and he and I have the best view Um, But what I love to do is, even if I'm not officiating, is turn and watch him. I love to see his reaction. Because what happens is the most manly of men turns soft right away. It's great to watch. It's really funny. Because he suddenly turns putty. He's crying. And I love it because she comes down and then we begin to do our vows. And these guys have no idea what they're in for. (laughs) They have no clue. Like, yes, I will. So you have no clue, man, what you're about to get into. Uh, But I love that she she says, behold. Take a look at him. Take a look. Pay attention to Solomon. Notice verse 7. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. It has nothing to do with a group of puppies. We'll talk about this in a minute. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel. 
all of them wearing swords expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. What is a litter? Okay, well, I want to explain this a little bit. We'll show a picture on the screen. This is more accurately a palanquin. This is uh, an Egyptian one, but this would be similar to what it may have looked like for Solomon. This is his personal carriage that he's arriving on. Now, it's interesting. We'll go on in a minute and look at who made it, but Solomon. Solomon personally took the wood of Lebanon, and he is involved in making this carriage. Now, you would need a few men to carry this, um, but, but note with me, how many men does Solomon have with him? It's mentioned to us right here in verse 7. How many men does he have with him? He has 60 men with him. Not to be outdone by his father, David, who, of course, had 30 mighty men. He's got to double that. Uh, you and I at our wedding may have had a best man or a good man. We had a few good men with us. Um, I think we had five or six. We had a very large wedding uh, for what we could afford. Uh, but we had, we had lots of, of best men. Um, here Solomon has 60 He's got 60 men, his finest men, the mighty men of Israel, and notice that they're wearing swords and expertise. These men are experienced. They're ready for every contingency. Their sword is at the ready. Notice, against terror by night. Uh, this is because Arab marauders would often take a wedding and turn it into a funeral by attacking at night. They knew that there would be a dowry. There would be lots of uh, procession with money, expensive things, so they're ready to defend Solomon and his new wife from attack. Now, the attention moves from the gaudiness of this procession to the beauty of the carriage itself. Notice verse 9. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its post of silver, its back or its top of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, actually, this is quite romantic. Solomon was personally invested in preparing for his marriage. He you could call it the marriage carriage. He's actually the one who designed it, who built it, who was involved in it. Now, he's rich enough that he could have subbed this out to many skillful men to make this form. But he personally uses his own resources and his own time, talents, treasure to get involved in prepping for this idea in marriage. Now, I love that idea because I'm always a fan of men who are willing to work hard to prepare their families for their future wives. And I love that, that men are, are setting up their, um, maybe it's a home, maybe it's a business, maybe uh, it's a property, uh, but getting ready for marriage. Ladies, if a guy is not working, he isn't worth marrying. Uh, he may need time to find a job, I get that, but take a guy working at a hot dog stand over a dude that's not willing to work any day of the week. Get a guy who's going to work hard for your family. Uh, now Solomon, notice he spared no expense. Look at the materials that he uses. He has Lebanese wood, very, very expensive. Silver posts, a gold back, purple upholstery. And then I like this. The, the interior was crafted with love. It was made with love. Uh, all of these materials, except for love, was what was constructing the royal palace as well as the temple. So Solomon is not sparing any expense to ensure his bride gets the very best. Men, can we give our wives the very best? Can we do that? I don't want to, at the end of my life, say, I gave you the Walmart version of myself. You know what I mean by that? Like the, the low-cost version of me. I come home from work, I'm tired, and I give the reduced-priced version of myself. They should get the best of our time. They should get the best of our attention, the best of our resources, not the leftovers. And so let's read on. It says in verse 11, this is again Shulamith, and she's saying now to the people around her, go out, 
O daughters of Zion. She just called them daughters of Jerusalem. And look upon Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. She says, hey, everyone, look. Go out and glance upon, gaze upon the bridegroom and take note that he's the king. His mother crowned him on the day of his wedding. Now, Bible trivia, who was Solomon's mom? You guys remember who was Solomon's mother? uh, Yell out the name. Bathsheba. Someone pointed out in first service on the Shoreline online page that Bathsheba was also possibly who wrote Proverbs 31. So that's interesting. You remember her past, Bathsheba, and here she is crowning her son. Think of the joy that would have been to crown her son. My son is the king over Israel, and he's being married to this um, woman who is, as it says in verse 11, the, this day is the, is the gladness of his heart. A marriage relationship is to be a place of joy. A wedding day is an unforgettable day. It's a day of union. It's a day of celebration. Again, next week we'll see the intimacy expressed in this marriage relationship as they become husband and wife in the marriage bed. But today, as we look at this wedding processional, this wedding day, we are drawn to this reality that this is the day of the gladness of his heart, that marriage was not an ordinance that man came up with. It's not as if Adam kind of found Eve, this woman in the garden, like, I need a woman. And so he kind of finds Eve and says, you know, we should, we should try this out. Let's try the menu out and let's kind of live together in the garden and let's just kind of enjoy this relationship for a little while and let's see how compatible we are in every way, sexually and other ways. And, and then we'll make a commitment based on how things work out. And if it doesn't work out, I'm out. But if it does work out, then, you know, we'll hang out and we'll eat fruit. This will be a great thing. No, marriage was not designed by man. It was designed by God himself for a variety of reasons. Now, I'm a fan of good design. I'm a fan of good design. If you're any Apple fans here today, if, you're, if you don't use Apple products, it's fine. There's still heaven, uh, potentially, for sinners like you. Um, but, uh, no, I, I do love, I realize I alienate half of my audience every time I bring up Apple products. Um, and there's always someone afterwards that says, yeah, um, you're the worst. But uh, I, I do like Apple products. I like Tesla um, as a car. I have a friend who just got a Tesla. And I just, I mean, literally, I thought I didn't struggle with envy. Literally pulls up in it, and I was like, you got to be kidding me. I'm like, bro, it's Pastor Appreciation Month. I think you should give me the key or the fob to your Tesla. Um, I, I love good design. Movement watches, Adidas shoes, whatever. I appreciate good design. And, and you can take any product and trace it back to a designer, and an original design. So listen, I'm not coming up with my own creative ideas of what marriage. Let's go back to the way God originally designed marriage. To do that, it's in your Bibles. Turn with me to the first page of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Again, I'm not here to argue politics or my opinion. I just want to read to you what the Bible says and what Christians believe marriage truly was designed for. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Note the plurality of God there in the Godhead. Elohim, let us make man in our image and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So the right of life given to Adam and Eve did not come because government said you have intrinsic worth and value. No, it came from God himself. We were created in the Latin phrase, the imago Dei, the image of God. And so by nature of that, every human life has dignity, worth, and value because we were created in God's image. So then it says in verse, uh, chapter 2, flip a page, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. If you've seen a single guy, you would say amen to that. I will make a helper fit for him. Sorry, guys. So the Lord God, verse 21, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Verse 22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now note verse 24 and 25. This is that first wedding. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast or cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So let's summarize this. In God's design, in creation, man is created in the the image of God, and then the suitable helper, woman, is designed to come alongside him and to form one person, you could say, one flesh. Uh, she's called his helpmate. In the King James, I like this, it's help meet. I like that. She's his help meet. Uh, one author pointed out in the Septuagint where they took the Old Testament and they translated it into Greek, the word there for helpmate is paraclete. Uh, and that is a word often used in the New Testament to describe the work of the Holy Spirit. So this, this alongside helper that comes alongside you. God created them, notice, this is very controversial today, but God created them with noticeable, identifiable genders. He created them male and created them female. So God apparently ordered creation to be binary. That's not an insult. That's that's what the scriptures teach, man and woman. So it doesn't matter if I identify one way or I feel one way. Uh, We were created with DNA with a specific gender on purpose for a purpose. And the, the man was created to specifically take the garden, cultivate it, and lovingly lead and serve his family. And the wife as he's providing and laying down his life, she, as he leaves other relationships behind and stays committed to her, she comes alongside him to work alongside him, to submit to him. And in their nakedness, they don't experience shame, but they become one flesh. Just think about that, fully exposed and fully safe. And that's the way God designed it, fully exposed and fully safe. So this is not, listen, this is not just two people who just love each other, who are just committed to each other. It's so much deeper than that. If that's all marriage is, well, we've, we've greatly reduced it. There's something far greater, far better than that, far deeper than that. Now, I want to give you five reasons for marriage. If you're taking note this morning, five reasons for marriage. Number one, marriage is for procreation. Uh, marriage sustains people. So if we don't have marriage, if we don't have sex in marriage, if I can be a little graphic, we don't have children. If we don't have children, then we wipe out the planet in a generation. So we need children, uh, which means marriage is uh, for procreation. So God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. By the way, that is a phrase 
that means having sex and bearing children. Be fruitful and multiply. And I, I believe, by the way, that this first one is one of the more devastating arguments against same-sex marriage. Uh, I'm not against someone who wants health benefits and, and needs a discount, um, but to redefine marriage just in order to obtain benefits, that's dangerous. And, and so procreation helps sustain um, humanity. Number two, marriage is for pleasure. It satisfies. Someone says, Pastor, how long have you been married? Do you know that marriage is not that satisfying? Well, I know we have our jokes in the culture about how marriage is a ball and chain, but the Bible says, Proverbs says in Proverbs 5.19, that we're always to be enraptured with the love of the wife of our youth. In fact, the Song of Solomon centers around the physical attractions and pleasures of marital love. And this goes way beyond sexual pleasure, but it should be mentioned that uh, sex should be desired in a marriage, and it should be enjoyed, and it should be satisfying. Uh, we know the Bible doesn't blush about this, uh, and so we shouldn't either. And so the, the marriage is for pleasure, to satisfy one another. Number three, marriage is a partnership. Marriage is to support one another. I love that the woman was created to be a helper suitable for him. Friendship between a husband and a wife is one of the key ingredients of a, of a healthy, good marriage. And my wife, Jen, and I, we've experienced what it means to uh, be soulmates, to be best friends, to be compadres, to be partners, to be BFFs, whatever, whatever phrase you want to use. We, uh, there's nothing greater, I think, for a man on an adventure to know there's someone alongside me. And I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, that's how we really fulfill the Great Commission. It starts within the home of saying, I feel called to reach the nations. We're called to do this. We're called to be a part of the body of Christ. So will you do this with me? And let's fulfill uh, the scriptures together in this partnership. It supports one another. You're not alone. A cord of three strands, as we know, is not easily broken. Well, then number four, marriage is for purity. Maybe that's a little surprising, but marriage is is a place to safeguard us. It protects us from sexual immorality in one small way because it somewhat meets a need for physical fulfillment. But it also protects you from the trap of loneliness. You see, God looks at Adam and says, it's not good that he's alone. So let's put him together in marriage with this woman. See, the sad thing is there's lonely married people, and that's not the way it was intended. If you're in marriage today and you're lonely, then something is greatly wrong. It may be a role that's wrong. It may be a relationship that needs healing. But our marriage relationships are to be a place of purity, a place of oneness. The writer of Hebrews chapter 13 says that the marriage bed should be kept pure. So I can be naked, literally or emotionally, with my spouse and I don't have to fear retribution. I don't have to fear judgment. I don't have to fear being pushed out and divorced. I can be who I am in front of them and be pure, and that purity safeguards who I am. Well, number five, and this is maybe the most confusing, but the most impacting, and that is that marriage is a picture. Marriage is a picture. It speaks. You might say, how does it speak? How is my marriage a picture? Well, um, to understand that, we have to go to Ephesians chapter 5. So if you guys have your Bibles, look over with me. Scroll, swipe, or flip to Ephesians chapter 5. Now in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians, of course, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he shows them in chapters 1, 2, and 3 the, the, some of the best scriptures in our entire Bible on the reality of who we are in Christ, the reality of our identity, 
of, of what the gospel has done to us and in us. But then in chapter four, he says, now here's how to flesh that out in real life. And then in chapter five, here's how to do that in community and relationships. So he says in, uh, starts with the home in chapter five, verse 22, first to the wife, then to the husband. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, you might hear that and go, oh, here we go. The, the chauvinistic Christians who are telling their wife to submit. Well, we did this um, study in Colossians chapter 3 and 4 where we talked about how this was countercultural because in, in the day that this was written, men basically owned their wives. They, they, women were considered often like property. And so for the woman to willingly submit to someone who had the potentiality of owning them is so countercultural. Uh, and so the idea here is not just submit to them because they're the man. The idea is submit to your own husband as to the Lord. Why? Because he's submitted to Christ. And Christ is submitted to the Father. And so this is a beautiful picture of loving, loyal submission in the order that God has created within creation. And then he says to husbands, verse 25, my wife always says this is the harder job. She sa uh, he says, husbands, love your wives. We could end there and just be like, amen. But he says, as Christ loved the church. Wow. I have to love my wife the way Christ loved the church. Well, how did he love the church? He tells us. He gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So I present my wife back to me after laying down my life and serving her and washing her in the scripture. And then when I present her back to me, it's not all of these things she does wrong, but it's in splendor, it's in holiness, it's without blemish. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Man, anybody there yet? Anybody arrived at that place yet of loving your wife fully the way Christ loved the church? Joey said yes. But we're, we're all there. We're all in process. But he says, he goes on, he says in verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh. He nourishes it, he cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, notice, here's the call back to Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Now, he could have ended there, and we would have been like, oh, that's really cool. It's a call back to, to Genesis, and I, I get that. Like, yeah, that's what we're called to be. But here Paul makes this incredible analogy, and he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to, to Christ and the church. You see what Paul's doing there? Paul's saying, hey, this marriage relationship, husband and wife, lovingly leading and serving and submitting, that is a glorious picture, not of just two lovers who are committed to each other, but no, this is a picture of Christ. This is a picture of Jesus and the church. Marriage speaks loudly to the world of Christ's love for his church. And I believe that reason, that fifth reason, that the, the marriage is a picture, it speaks. I think that is the best deterrent against divorce because divorce mars the picture. If you've been divorced, if your husband or wife has left you, I, I'm sorry for that. And, and divorce sadly mars the picture of, of Christ with his bride because Jesus will never divorce us. Jesus will never leave his church. He'll never come after our money or after the kids or after our name. 
Jesus is faithful to the end, even though his bride, the church, is often unfaithful. Nevertheless, in Scripture, somehow we're called radiant and faultless. I think this is one of the big reasons that same-sex marriage is not a part of God's plan. Because we take the gender role of husband-wife, male or female, and we blur that. So what happens is, now there's no diversity in harmony. See, before husband and wife, we have diversity coming together in harmony. Well, we destroy that um, in same-sex marriage. God created these roles on purpose. And if we get the roles wrong, we don't know, well, who's laying down their life and who's submitting? Who's the one who's lovingly leading and who's the one who is receiving and is the helpmate? See, someone's going to take the role and someone's going to run with it. John Stott says this. He says, we should not deny that homosexual relationships can be loving. They can be. But the love quality of same-sex sexual relationships is not sufficient to justify them. Indeed, I have to add that in a sense they are incompatible with true love because they're incompatible with God's law. Love is concerned for the highest welfare of the beloved and our highest human welfare is found in obedience to God's law and purpose, not in revolt against them. You see, marriage is more profound than love. It's more important than just committing to someone for the rest of your life so that you are eligible for benefits. Paul is saying, that this whole marriage thing is a mysterious analogy. It's a metaphor for the relationship between Christ and his church. This has nothing to do with compatibility, commitment, love, romance, or rights. It has to do with Jesus. It has to do with his covenantal love, laying down his life for you and I. So as we look at the text of Song of Solomon, you know, where do we see Jesus in this text on marriage? Well, I think we just pointed that out. But I love one little phrase back in um, Song of Solomon 3, verse 11. We're told, um, Shulamith says to the daughters of Jerusalem and then the daughters of Zion, she calls them to look. And I think those two phrases, daughter of Jerusalem, daughter of Zion, are found in another passage of Scripture. In fact, they're found throughout the Old Testament. But here's a familiar one. Where do we remember this from? Zechariah 9.9. Maybe you've heard this before. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king, look at your king, daughters, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Where do we see that? We see that in the arrival of King Jesus into Jerusalem. So this morning, you and I can rejoice as we see the coming king who wants to be married to his church, his people. And you and I can rejoice. Why? Because, I don't know if you realize this, but before we were pronounced holy by Christ, we were harlots. Before we were accepted in the beloved, we were rejected and outcast and lost and in darkness and by nature children of wrath, separated from a holy God, um, for sure on a path to destruction, an enemy, an outsider, an alien, and a stranger. But he says this morning, look, behold, your king the bridegroom approaches. God beckons us to look, to look upon the king, to look upon his son. This morning, you don't have to be perfect to look. Spurgeon was saved by a sermon that was very simple, and the, the argument was just simply, look, look upon the son. You don't have to have perfect eyesight to look. You don't have to be, doesn't matter if you're old, young, male, or female. You can be a child today, but look on the king.
And what amazing grace is this, that you and I have been brought to the wedding feast and that the king in all of his glory would seek after someone like me, someone like you. Today we have a great opportunity as Christ followers in our marriage relationships. Before we close, one French novelist said this. He said, a successful marriage is an edifice that must be rebuilt every single day. I know I joked about this a few weeks ago that like, hey, honey, I love you on our wedding day. I said I loved you. If anything changes, I'll let you know. I know that was a joke, but, but like seriously, we every morning, men, should be waking up and communicating to our wife, I love you. And we should communicate every day um, our desire to live the gospel out in our marriages. Every single day. Let's not take it for granted. Well, I love you, and you'll know if anything changes. No, I want to every day rebuild a successful marriage. Now, as we close, we could try to win this argument the argument of marriage through politics, logic, or persuasion. I think the best apologetic against the culture's view on marriage is simply for us as Christians to flourish in Christ-centered marriages ourselves. Amen? So we say this is biblical marriage on paper in the text. Why don't we display biblical marriage in and through our lives? That's my prayer for us. In fact, in the 1930s, a British anthropologist studied 86 cultures, and these cultures stretched across about 5,000 years. And this anthropologist found without question, when a culture restricted sex to marriage, they thrived as a culture. Strong families headed by faithful spouses made for bold, prosperous societies. But not one culture survived more than three generations after turning sexually permissive. There was one noted Harvard sociologist, and they found no culture survived once it ceased to support marriage and monogamy. None. Now, we'll delve more into sexuality in the marriage bed next Sunday. But for today, why don't we just close in thanksgiving and just gratitude for what we have. If you're married to a Christian today, we need to celebrate that. We need to thank God for that. If you're married today, would you put your arm around your spouse, and let's just pray together thanking God for one another, or hold hands if you can't reach. Um, let's just take some time to glorify God and thank him for our marriages. Father, we thank you for your grace expressed to us in Christ. And Lord, we're not trying to be militant and angry. We're thankful. We're joyful at what you've blessed us with. And we thank you, Lord, for the design that you've given us, because within this marriage, there's in this exclusivity, which the world can mock and laugh at, we can be fully known fully exposed and fully safe. We can be appreciated, valued, and enjoyed. We can be cared for and prayed for and sought after and desired. We can be someone who is helping and is being helped. We're not alone. Lord, what a blessing and benefit it is to be married to a Christian. I pray today that we as Christian marriages would flourish in bringing you glory and in enjoying and being a blessing to this world by showing off what biblical marriage can look like. So Father, as we close in song, we just ask for your help. We're thankful for these marriages, but Lord, we need your help desperately. Would you help us, Lord, to love our wives? Would you help us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? Lord, we sin and we get it wrong all the time. Forgive us. If there's bitterness and unforgiveness and brokenness in our marriages, forgive us, Lord. Heal it, that we could be one in Christ. Lord, we thank you for this important message that we need to hear 
And I know the world reviles against it. But Lord, we thank you for the design you've given us in your word. Now we desperately need you to live out this biblical marriage in front of a world that needs the hope of the gospel. So help us to do that with gentleness, respect, and grace. We love you, Lord. We need you. And we thank you for your goodness to us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.